No, they ain't going to get me, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> you're like the you're like the Teflon Don. You're like the Teflon Dad. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Like you did the easiest time in the world. Every single time I saw you in that orange jumpsuit, it looked tailored. I swear to God. <laughs> did you go to a different room? Like I went into the property room. I feel like they were. Oh, Mr. Sobolewski, no, this way. <laughs> yeah. I'm really. Yeah, I'm yeah, you to, you're in a silk jumpsuit. <laughs> you got a pinky ring. You bastard. All right, I'll talk to you later. We're paying people too much. We're hiring too many people. We're not picking the right targets. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Family Jewels podcast. This is Brian Sobolewski. I'm your host. And this is episode three, the Jewel Mart murder. Picking up from the last episode, grabbing the case. We're going to pick up right back. My brother and I went right up to Plymouth State College after. And this allowed us to party and go crazy even worse uh, because we had unlimited amount of money at this point. The amount of diamonds that were in that case, uh, the projected amount that we were going to be able to sell them over time was astronomical. I think we we arrived at a number at about 250000 is what those diamonds would be street value. So retail value, my God, depends on which retail establishment you went to. But, you know, most places are close to an 800% markup on most jewelry. Guys, consider that. So when you go out to buy jewelry, consider that you're paying 800% over the regular retail, number one. Number two, diamonds aren't rare. They really are not rare. If you want a rare stone, you go out and you find a unheat-treated sapphire. You find a unheat-treated emerald. Uh, emeralds are way rarer than rarer than anything else. Anyway, Jewel Mart murder. Here we go. My brother and I head back up to Plymouth State College, and we are partying our brains out. My brother decides that he's going to buy some more steroids. Uh, we're failing out of school because we're partying so much. But again, this was a point where dad couldn't call us and yell at us about anything. We could just say, hey, you know, this is it. At that point, I, I find it hard to believe that my dad didn't know. My mother told him constantly that, that we had drug problems, but he never really addressed it. We never talked about it. Um, He never, he wasn't that dad, man. He just wasn't that dad. I remember that at 19, my mother, who was newly sober kicked me out of the house says see you later i can't take you she found an ounce of weed in my in my room it was new year's day i remember i woke up i was hammered from the night before i had an ounce of weed i was psyched to just spend new year's day watching cable and i go to take a shower my mother comes up to my room sees my ounce grabs it and and i have to tell you that it's still very difficult thing for me to even discuss because can you imagine trying to get sober and, and and my mother was a drinker man my mother was a drinker and she smoked i used to steal weed from her uh sure cocaine came into it i don't think my mother really i think my mother was drinking to to quell uh an anxiety problem and so it it, it was a pretty dickish thing for me to do and i was 19 no she have to keep me at home so she didn't she told me she was going to kick me out and she did and I went to live with my dad and my mother told my dad exactly why she was kicking me out and 
I was expecting my dad to be like, what's up, man? You got a drug problem? Yada, yada. And, and I was ready to deny it or, you know, maybe it was an opportunity for me to get help. My dad, uh, we were at the 99. This is where we planned all of our jewelry robberies. My dad spent a lot of time in little places like this. If you don't know the 99 restaurant, uh, it's like a Chili's. Right, you go in, it's a huge bar, they serve popcorn. My dad loved it. And he would sit there and he would meet his clients for jewelry. He would meet his clients for his job. He would meet us there. Um, and I remember sitting with him and he said, you know, you're moving in with me because your mom says uh, you have a drug problem. Do you? I said, nope. And he said, okay. And that was it. That was it. That was the end of the discussion. I can tell you that as uh, we were ripping through jewelry stores and my brother ended up having to go to Florida because uh, of his DUIs, that I got crazy and I was using daily. And I called my dad and I said, uh, I need help. It was the first time in my life I had ever made the admission. And every addict will tell you that that admission is is freedom. Um, my dad, it, it sounded like I had just told him he had to leave a wedding to come and pick me up. You know, he was just so disappointed. It wasn't concern, it was disappointment. He came and he picked me up and he says, you know, what do you want to do about this problem? And I said, I need rehab. And he said, I can't afford rehab. And we had done, Jesus, this was in 1993. That was three years into robbery. So we're probably 15, maybe 20 stores into it. There was cash all over the house. There was jewelry everywhere. Our house looked like Blackbeard's treasure. You know, if any of this stuff stayed in that one spot, you know, and the earth ever swallowed my dad's condo, there'd be people looking for it well into the 3000s. Um... Anyway, so that, that, just giving you a sense of what my dad was like when it came to the fact that my brother and I were going insane. After a robbery, after the Jacob robbery, we left with $1,000 cash each on a Friday. We came back on a Sunday, both of us 25 pounds lighter and pale with nothing to show for the money that he had given us and he still didn't know. Well, no, man, I, I, I find that hard to believe. So we come back from Plymouth State College and dad proposes this job. Again, struck us. How, you know, we, we weren't in the business of robbing jewelry stores now, but apparently we were. So the way that he proposes to us was very Robin Hood-esque. These, there were people that had done the same thing. This guy that owned this jewelry store had done the same thing that Jacob had done to my dad. So these people invested $50,000 of their hard-earned money for this guy to bring jewelry or diamonds into the country. And Woody, the owner of the Jewel Mart, ripped these people that hired us off. He said, there's no diamonds coming. I can't get your money back. And these people claimed that the money was in his store. That the money was in his store. In the safe. So they wanted us to go in there and get it. And they said, for our trouble, we could take the rest of the store. So whatever jewelry was in the cases, and Bill was pretty familiar, he, Bill had sold, Bill Lawson, our co-defendant, 
guy that that was the our inside man for all of the jobs there might have been a handful of jobs that he didn't have some sort of inside knowledge of what might be in the store in some cases bill was able to make sure a certain amount of jewelry was in the store so he would you know he was he could mail out orders to people from his store you know so say he mails you a hundred thousand dollars worth of diamond rings because you ordered them for christmas time and make sure they're in the store and then we come in and you know we know that this, the job is worth it so bill was integral in this so this bill is the one presenting this to us and you know he's the one who says these people want this money so understand that, that right away there's a bunch of red flags one is that we have to be armed. Uh, Woody was armed. He uh, carried a gun, but according to Bill, he took it off. He took it off when he opened up the store. Number two, we had to subdue the victim. This meant taping, tying, or handcuffing him at, at somewhere in the store where he was out of the way and he couldn't bother us. And... It was a public store, and that was a problem too. Jacob was his house, you know. That that's not a place that you would typically imagine a cop driving by. I mean, very unlikely. This was a public place on a public road in a in a very populated Seabrook, New Hampshire. Um, so you know that was, of course, a big red flag for us. And lastly, it was the first time that we were going to have to case somewhere where we we're going to have to sit and get to know the routines of not only the store owner but try to get to know any type of routine that we can pick up if we could ever ascertain whether or not the cops came by at a certain time if maybe a cop on patrol stopped by the dunkin donuts a couple of doors down if he you know how likely was that to happen so it was really just sitting and counting the traffic and it's amazing what you pick up while you're casing somewhere the routines that you start to pick up and the things that you start to notice. I can tell you there were very specific things that I started to notice as we were casing. One was there was a red Corvette that drove by at 9.05 pretty much every day unless there was some sort of traffic that prevented him or got him there early, but he was there every day. Guy, red Corvette. There was a crow that came down into the supermarket parking lot. So there's a supermarket right across from the Jewel Mart. A crow came down and ate from the parking lot same time every day. You started to get a sense of shifts for the supermarket people, for the Dunkin' Donuts people, and, you know, it was the our second day of casing, and I'm in the back seat, my brother and father are in the front, and I'm like, guys, I just realized that we are as susceptible to being noticed as routinely as we are noticing other people. So as much as we were noticing the backdrop and as much as we were noticing the routine of those around us we were becoming part of that routine and that was dangerous very easy to see three guys sitting in a car every day it would be noticeable it would stick out in some person's mind so i said you know we really need to change the cars that we're sitting here and we need to change the way that we look maybe one day i just come down next day we do a different car and dad comes down and we had to be very careful that when this went off, we didn't leave a trail behind. So that was another thing we had to think about. And, and the, the store layout. So we sit every we sit at this 99. Bill's there. Kev's there. Dad's there. I'm there. 
I'm eating, Kev's eating, Dad's drinking, Bill's drinking. And we're trying to hash out a plan here. Store layout is the the Jewel Mart is recessed a little bit off a, a busy street, Route 1. Um, it wasn't a median highway. Uh, it was an open highway, speed limit about 45. Closer to the stores, maybe 35, just to give you an idea. The store itself sat back a little bit. It was freestanding. There was a bay window on either side of the store, uh, on either side of the glass door that sat in the middle. So door in the middle, two bay windows on either side. Woody usually parked on the side of the building and walked in through the front, used the key, and that's where we saw that he usually had his gun. It was, it was not... Um, it was not hard to notice this gun that he had. It was easily a Desert Eagle or a 45 with a clip. I mean, it was huge. It To me, it looked like a cruise missile. And I can tell you that I wouldn't have cared if it was a pea shooter. It was scared the shit out of me. And it made me not want to do it. And same for my brother. Because that meant that we were going to have to be armed. Again, we knew he was going to take the gun off, but... But still, it, there was a gun in the in the vicinity. There was a gun in the store that wasn't ours that we weren't in control of. So this, the plan was that we were going to pose as customers. So we're sitting at this meeting. Bill's telling us, two bay windows. The left side of this building is where he had the display cases for the jewelry. All the jewelry was inside the display cases, and they were locked. The back office behind the display cases was a door that led to uh, I think there were two offices one that front office had the camera system and it was videotape so we we're going to have to get that videotape and then the very back office had the safe in Woody's office we we're going to have to get back there get the videotape we have to get into the safe we're going to have to get all the jewelry all while making sure that Woody was subdued wow are you kidding me? Bill was never part of the job. Uh, it was always me, my brother, my father, and my brother. Um, so this was a lot to take, man. This this was a lot to do. So the job, the uh, the plan. We're gonna rent a minivan. My dad always rented a, a some vehicle that we would use for the job the week before, and. He would return it, make a, he would make a key, he would return it, and then the night before we needed it, we would take it off the lot, change plates just in case they, you know, were looking for it or they, you know, the call went out early enough or they noticed it was gone and whatever. So that's what we do. We were going to pull the minivan up in front of the jewelry side bay window to partially obscure the view inside the store. We had to. With the traffic driving by, if there was a red light or any type of backup and someone just happened to turn their head while my dad was sticking a gun in this guy's face, that was going to be a problem. So, me, dad, and Kevin were going to go in and pose as customers and the what we needed to make sure was going to happen was we needed to make sure that that safe was open. You have to understand in the jewelry industry, insurance companies are very, very strict about how you'd comport your business. So the safe in the back is only as good as it's locked. 
So when you open in the morning and you open up that safe and you leave it open all day because you're back and forth into it. And why are you back and forth into the safe is because insurance companies require that most of these stores have in their display cases counterfeit or fake jewelry. So when you see there is a I don't know if I could ever get this or post this, but the, one of the news channels that reported on my dad after he was arrested, they pulled a bunch of these duffel bags of jewelry out of my dad's house after he was arrested, after the 30 robberies, and they displayed it on this big folding table, and I'm watching it on the news, and I knew the shit was fake, but they were touting, the cops were touting it on the news as, you know, real jewelry seized to make it look like they had actually made a seize, but they didn't get shit, that stuff was brass and glass, it was nothing. So insurance companies want you to either keep those cases under lock and key which most jewelry stores are. if you've ever been in a jewelry store you know that the cases are locked and very thick glass it takes a, at least a like a ball peen hammer to, is that what that is a big hammer i'm not a construction guy but a regular hammer is going to take a couple of thwacks at it um you needed something heavy to come down crash on it then it was going to send glass all over the display case you're going to have to try to pull all of the jewelry out of these display cases while trying to avoid broken glass so not an easy job. So, got to get in the back. Got to get the videotape. We got to get to the safe. We got to get a gun. We got to get the gun away from Woody, wherever he put it. Bill was sure that he left it in his office. So, three things that have to happen right away. Woody has to be subdued. We have to find the gun. Have to make sure the um, safe is open. Those three things all don't happen. We're screwed. Go in there posing as customers. At one point, uh, my dad was going to pull out a gun and get, uh, and as soon as he did that, my brother was going to subdue Woody. Not hard, not hard to do. My brother's huge. Take him down. We're going to cuff him, tape him or something, tie him. Our preference was cuffs. So we had a list of things that we needed to acquire, especially for this job. One was the minivan. And what was a list of items you don't typically go out and find at your nearest target? We needed handcuffs. We needed duct tape. We needed my dad's gun. We needed a hammer. We needed a duffel bag. And a duffel bag isn't something I could have walked in there with. I had to stuff it under my jacket so that I had easy access to it while it's still not being noticed. So, to get the cuffs, uh, hmm... There were no army surplus stores around. There was no internet. I mean, I can go on the internet now and I can get a switchblade knife. I can order a 12-year-old boy off of Amazon if I wanted to at this point. But back then, there was no way. You couldn't get military-grade handcuffs or law enforcement-grade handcuffs. We went to an adult toy store um, and got pink lace cuffs that you would cuff your lover to your bed bedboard with. And we couldn't get the lace off the things, man. So we were absolutely intent on cuffing poor Woody to a sink in the back of his store with pink lace cuffs. So imagine him having to deal with that in his life. We're going to tape his mouth. And this, so now as we're divvying up jobs for this, who's, who's going to do what? Um, it falls to Kev to subdue Woody. And that's, this was the... This was the modus operandi for all jobs. Is Kev was in charge of the, of the victim, watching him, making sure that he didn't go anywhere. Dad was our gopher, where he would go through the store and go after anything that we wanted above and beyond the jewelry. And I was the case grabber, the banana grabber. 
And I had to smash these cases open. That was my job. Smash the cases open, get all the jewelry out of there, into a duffel bag, and out of there in 90 seconds. While my dad goes in the back and gets the videotape and gets Woody's gun, opens the safe if he has to. And again, guys, a huge problem. Huge problem if that safe isn't open. Huge problem. How are we going to tell these people that employed us and told us to go in and get their money that that safe wasn't open? Screw you. We would have had to give them the jewelry that, that we took out of there. I mean, these people were getting 50 grand no matter what. This job was just crazy. So, we get all this stuff. We get all this stuff. We, we Everybody gets their job. The night of, me and my brother are smoking a giant out in the back porch in my dad's condo. And uh, we go to bed. My dad gets up at about 5 that morning, goes to the gym. I'm laying there, and my brother says, Hey, Bri. I say, yeah, Kev. He says, you awake? I say, yeah, Kev, I just answered you. He says, uh, you nervous? I said, of course. Are you? He said, yeah. I said, uh, just remember the plan and just do what you're supposed to and I'll do what I'm supposed to and we'll be okay. And then I, it had to be what, what had, it had to be a huge amount of space in my mind anyway had gone by and, uh, out of nowhere, he says, Bri, are we bad people? And it struck me. It was it was tough to hear. It was a tough question to ponder because the answer was yes. But how do you tell? Kev had such a childlike innocence about him that that was endearing. And it was that part of him that was asking the question. That question should have been asked to my dad. Not to me. And I said, uh, I don't know, Kev. Let's just get through this. So we all pile into the minivan. We drive east because we were in Nashua. We drive east to where this store was. We sit in the supermarket parking lot in the minivan. We watch Woody get to work. Pull up his car next to the store. He gets out. Got his gun on, looks bigger than ever. Goes into the store and we wait. We know we gotta wait about 20 minutes so he can get himself settled, so he can fill the cases and make sure that they're he didn't unlock them. So again, the reason why we're smashing these cases is because I didn't want to have to take the time to get the keys, find which keys, open which case, and that that was just seconds off a clock that you know could be 15 cops outside pointing guns at us. So smash and grab. So, he goes in, we, quote, 20 past 9, I think on the nose, we pull the minivan up to the bay window, we get it as close as we can in there, we pile on out of the car, we, we hit the doorbell, because it's a buzzer, Woody has to buzz us in, and we see Woody poke his head out from the office, and Take a look at us and then poke his head back in and we hear the buzz. Bzzz, we're in. Well, that was easy. Except uh, Woody didn't take his gun off. He kept it on. 
so we were freaked. I was freaked. I remember I flanked my dad and my brother. My brother was in the middle. My dad was on the end. We were standing in front of a jewelry display case. I could. My dad may as well have been a peanuts phone call. Wah, 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 wah. That's all I really heard. I was waiting for the escalation because you don't hear anything. The adrenaline is, is, it fills up into your eyeballs. It fills into your ears. It fills into your nose. You can't smell anything other than nerve. You know that tingling feeling you get when you punch and it just radiates and it tingles. That's what you smell. And, and I'm just waiting for a wah, 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 like, like, oh my God. And, and then I was just going to go into smash and grab mode, but that didn't come. My dad's talking and talking and talking. He's trying to get Woody to go in the back to get, to make sure that he opens up the safe. You know, saying, I don't like any of these rings here. Do you have anything a little bit more expensive? We want to get a little bit more fancy with this. It's taking my dad a long time to get this to happen. It's killing me and my brother. Finally, Woody goes in the back to get a different set of rings for us. And it was at that point that we rallied. We go over to, and made it look like we were looking for flowers and looking at the flowers. And I said, Dad, what the fuck are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill us, man? What? What is going on? I don't like this. And my brother says, I don't like it either. What are we doing here, Dad? And my dad said, calm down. It's fine. This is what we're going to do. And then Woody comes back out. Back into formation. My dad says a couple other things. And I hear my dad said, well, you know what? I, we're going to have to check with the missus. And uh, let me let me give her a call and we'll come back. And we leave. We left. We're out. It wasn't supposed to be a gun, man. He wasn't supposed to have his gun. So we left. Drive home disappointed, I guess. I wasn't disappointed. I was psyched. I didn't want to. I didn't want to do this from the get go. None of none of this situation sat well with me. None of this situation sat well with my brother. I don't think either one of us were too disappointed. Here's what happens next. This was spring break. We did this, I think, on a Tuesday. That Friday, my brother and I are watching TV in my dad's condo in the living room. My dad had uh, all the bedrooms were upstairs. My dad's upstairs ironing shirts, watching the news. You hear him yell, holy shit. My dad never reached that level of emotion. He was never like, oh my God. He was, you know, my God. Sons, check this out. He always even keel, always kept his, his cool. And, you know, this was a, a, a level of emotion we didn't, we knew something was coming. He runs downstairs and he changes our TV to the news that he was watching. And on the news report is Jewel Mart. Covered in police caution tape. Squad cars outside, detective vehicles outside. Woody was dead. Somebody shot him. It, uh, I don't know. The way that I felt at that point, I didn't realize, nor did my brother, realize that we had gone from laying on the couches, we were both standing, very erect, like meerkats. And I remember saying probably one of the most effed up things I've ever said in my life, and the irony of it was just crazy. I said, uh, wow, somebody went in there to kill him. 
we were just going to rob him. Like, that was an option that was better. Like, hey, she was stuck with us. I was just going to get... Wow. Wow, guys. Wow. Now, I say these things to you, and I, I do this podcast because I've never really understood what I'm going to do with my past. I've, uh, you know, and we'll explore this as the podcast goes on, but, you know, being an ex-con in America is a very difficult thing. Um, it, it really changed who I was, and it really changed what I was able to do with my life and what continues to change and, and influence what I'm able to do with my life. So I have the articles here. So, wouldn't leave it there. I want to substantiate everything that I have been talking about with you guys by reading you two articles. You know, there'll be some information here that overlaps, but still entertaining. The first one comes, it was November 2nd, this was written. November 6th, I'm sorry, 1992. Nashua Mann pleaded guilty yesterday to the killing of the owner of a Seabrook jewelry store in May. Lawrence T. Ronco, 57, pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and armed robbery in connection with the shooting death of Woody Haskell of Portsmouth. Ronco, a jewelry salesman, faces up to life in prison on second-degree murder charge and seven and a half to 15 years in prison, plus a $4,000 fine on the robbery charge. Tack four grand onto there. How do they come up with that number? All right, we know you did an armed robbery. Uh, four grand. How do you come up with that? Is that indicative of any number at all? Is that indicative of the amount of money that was spent investigating this or the time? Because that number has to be quadruple that when you consider you know, all the investigation and stuff like that. Interesting to find out. Like any penologists out there that know why $4,000 is the fine for a robbery charge. I'd like to know that. Rockingham County Superior Court Judge Patricia Coffey will schedule a sentencing hearing within about 30 days. Ronco was indicted on charges of first-degree murder and robbery. He pleaded innocent on those charges and his uh, trial had been scheduled to begin next week. Jury selection for the trial was in its second week with 11 of the 15 jurors, including three alternatives, picked as of yesterday morning. Ronco had been found guilty, oh, had Ronco been found guilty on first-degree murder, he would have received an automatic sentence of life in prison without chance of parole. According to the state autopsy, Haskell was killed by a bullet to the head. In pre-trial hearing last month, Ronco's attorneys, Clifford Kinghorn and Steve Maynard of Nashua, failed to convince the judge to suppress state's evidence against him. That's hilarious. I'll pause there for a second to let that sink in. Two defense lawyers actually stood up in front of a judge and says, Hey, ignore everything that makes this guy guilty ignore all of the truth please can we throw that out so we can let this guy go i don't know what this guy paid for these defense attorneys but he was ripped off what a what a joke ronco became a suspect in the may 15th killing 
after a customer told police he saw Ronco at Haskell's store and wrote down Ronco's vehicle registration number, said Mark Zuckerman, Assistant Attorney General. Not Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> On May 16th, state police investigators tracked Ronco to his home in Nashua. Two detectives interviewed Ronco inside his home late that day while other police officers were on surveillance duty in his neighborhood outside his house. According to police testimony at the hearing, Ronco was observed outside his home carrying a black duffel bag he had taken from his car. Police said Ronco put the bag under the outside steps of his neighbor's house, then re-entered his home to continue his interview with detectives. Police said they, were subs they subsequently obtained the bag. According to court records, it contained a Grendel 38 caliber handgun, an undetermined amount of U.S. currency, um, not an undetermined amount, there was $50,000 in there, a cloth-covered ring display, utility tape, a knife, face cloth, gun case, ammunition, a red nylon bag with broken glass, and business cards from the Jewel Mart, Haskell's store. Maynard argued that the state's evidence had been taken improperly. Coffee ruled against that argument. In their interviews with potential jurors this week, Ronco's attorneys indicated jurors selected for the trial would hear a lot about self-defense. Prosecutors Zuckerman and Diane M. Nicolosi indicated in their interviews with potential jurors that there were no evidence, there was no evidence, to support an argument with self-defense, which they never work anyway. Self-defense... <laughs> never work never work so you know from the get go this guy was just screwed to the wall this other uh, article pretty much goes over the same stuff but just goes over the plea deal so instead of a first degree murder rap this guy pleads down to second degree murder gets life with chance of uh, possibility of parole, I think it says, after like 38 years. So it's possible this guy could see the light of day again. Although, 38 years, I think a lot of judges sit down and figure out how many years until you're dead. You know, this guy was in his 50s, so 38 years put him close to his 90s, and it's not likely you're going to make it that far. Not in prison. So that's the Jewel Mart murder, guys. That's... That's what happened. Now, this sent shockwaves through through the jewelry industry. And like I said, the jewelry industry at the time was um, a bunch of traveling salesmen that drove all over the place and went to little mom and pop places and tried to sell a product line that this company sold. So Citra was a company that, that we stole a lot of jewelry from. They had their own product line of diamonds, jewelries, gold, emeralds, everything you could imagine in this big thick catalog. And they had salespeople that drove around and went to stores and tried to sell the entire product line back when they weren't really big chain jewelry stores. This is going to be important to remember because the next podcast, part four, is going to be about the Burlington robbery, our biggest robbery. Probably what really, probably the sickest robbery. Um, so I'm going to spend the week, guys, uh, trying to 
get as much detail as I can down for you guys and try to make this as real as possible. Give you all the all the deets. If you want to check out some pictures of the fam and some pictures, go to Family Jewels Book on Facebook. It's Family Jewels Book on Facebook. That's where I'm putting a lot of podcast stuff. That's where I'll post the podcast. Go on and become a member so you can get updates. Please post comments or any questions that you have. If, if I get enough questions, I'll sit here and I'll do an entire podcast just on questions. So if you want to post any questions on that Facebook page, please do and I will address them. Join, join the Facebook page. Um, tell your friends about this podcast, guys. This has been a lot of fun to bring to you guys. And uh, thanks for tuning in, man. I really appreciate it. Stay safe. So, you know, I saw Bill Pistorino, his paperwork and how that was presented. And the judge actually says, well, Mr. Pistorino is probably innocent, but the district attorney has made the case, and I'm going to find him guilty.